0: to, there are loads of announcements, there's loads of things going on uh, over the next few weeks and if we announced them all on a Sunday morning it would take a lot of the service. Uh, So what we do uh, every week is we send out an email every Monday which has all the uh, announcements in there. Um, And especially over the next couple of weeks there's loads going on, Uh, the Uganda team are having a special evening on Thursday when you can use or learn sewing skills uh, that will help them in preparing for the, the team. Uh, the Kids Fun Club is on on Friday evening. There's a, an evening to hear about Sligo and Albania, also on Friday evening. And there are also lots of special things going on over Easter. Um, and all of that will be in the Monday email tomorrow. Um, so all of that is to say, if you don't currently get the Monday email, um, the best thing you can do is find a little yellow um, contact card out in reception. And if you fill in your email address and your details, we'll make sure that you get the email. Um, And maybe just worth saying uh, regularly, if you have signed up before and you're still not getting the emails, um, do check with me or with somebody else and we'll see what's gone wrong uh, because we'd love to keep you uh, just in the loop uh, with everything that's going on. And maybe just the one other thing I will mention is um, as we sent out info uh, during the week, um, we are having a special collection uh, related to the Uganda team. Uh, The collection is going to be going towards uh, buying various resources and items that the team need in order to do the work that they're going to be doing in the schools in northern Uganda and also some things that they're going to give away. Um, And so for the next two Sundays, um, we do have a giving box on a Sunday morning. Some people, uh, it's a great mystery and they don't know where it is, but it is out in reception um, and you can give in that way. The the easiest way to give always is um, directly online. And again, we'll put the details of that in the Monday email, uh, if you don't know those details uh, of how to do that. Uh, But it's an opportunity, I guess, for all of us who are not able to go on the Uganda team uh, to participate in a very practical way um, in buying stuff that's needed to go and bless those communities um, in Uganda. So we'd love to encourage everybody just to give thoughtfully, give joyfully, give generously, um, as we're encouraged to do uh, in the Bible. That's all i got to say about that. Um, let's take a moment um, and gather our hearts before God uh, as we come to his word. Let's pray. Father, we, we sang in a song uh, at the beginning of our service that the king of life is on the move. And I want to pray... Um, As we come to your word this morning, I want to pray um, that you would bring the reality, reality of that home to our hearts. I want to pray that each of us would be convinced in our hearts that the king of life is on the move. That you are king and you're the only one that we can and should give our allegiance to and bow the knee to that you're the king of life and you bring life and resurrection and new hope. Everywhere you go, you breathe life. You raise the dead parts of us to life. You raise the dead parts of our world to life. You're the king of life Um, and you're on the move. You're not standing by idly watching. You're on the move and I wanna pray you would give us eyes of faith to see that in our time, in our generation, In our town, in the ordinary places where we spend our days, the king of life is on the move, and he's inviting us to move with him into adventures and mission. Um, So, Father, would you convince our hearts that this is true, that the king of life is on the move? And I pray as we open up your word this morning uh, that you would speak words of life to us that would move us out towards our neighbors as messengers of hope. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, so, um, I'm going to ignore the clock because it's uh, for, for lots of reasons, because we're running late and it's wrong anyway. Um, so I'm just going to um, share uh, what's on my heart this morning. Uh, we've come to the end of our series uh, looking at everyday mission. Um, there it is. Um, and just to say the next couple of Sundays we will be turning our attention... Uh, towards Easter and thinking about uh, the message of uh, the cross and the resurrection. Um, But this is the end of our series on everyday mission. Um, And I guess um, in this series, we've been thinking about mission. We've kind of been all over the Bible. We've been looking at the theme of mission really from Genesis to Revelation. And we've thought about the big picture, the big story of God's mission in the Bible. And then we've zoomed in a little bit to think about some of the real down to earth practicalities of how we participate in that mission um, but one of the things i've noticed is there, you can go anywhere in the bible to talk about mission um, but i noticed that i found myself reaching for one book more than any other and i don't know if you noticed this over the last few weeks um, but the book that i've reached for uh, more than any other has been first peter and I've been thinking about this uh, over the last couple of weeks. I, I don't think it's coincidental or accidental. Um, the book of First Peter, I, I think, has particular um, relevance uh, for the, the times that we are living in right now. Uh, and maybe the phrase that I want to introduce this morning is the idea that we are exiles on mission. And that'll sound maybe like a bit of a strange phrase, uh, but I want to try and open that up a little bit this morning. And First Peter, I think more than any other book in the New Testament, opens up this idea of what it means to be exiles on mission. And for that reason, I think First Peter is a book that's especially pertinent, especially um, uh, relevant to where we are right now. Um, I'm convinced that this theme of being exiles on mission is really vital for the times that we're living in right now. Um, I want to mention this sermon uh, has been inspired uh, by this book, um, which you're if you don't like the sermon, go and read the book because that's better, um, by Paul Williams called Exiles on Mission. The subtitle is How Christians Can Thrive in a Post-Christian World. And really, if you want kind of today's sermon in a nutshell, that subtitle or that title and subtitle will do it. We are exiles on mission and we are able to thrive even in a post-Christian world. Um, Ricky Ricky Linton and I have had many conversations together over the last couple of years about this theme of being exiles and mission and Ricky and I are both convinced this is a really vital, urgent theme uh, for the church right now. Um, So yes, that's kind of my my advert for why I want to think about this as we finish uh, this series. Um, Let's look at the very beginning of the book of First Peter. Sorry, I'm looking over my shoulder because I don't have it up there this week. Um, just checking what's behind me. Um, these are the opening words of the book of First Peter. Uh, this is what it says. Peter, an apostle of Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So that's how Peter begins his letter. And I want to highlight that word. Oh, this is gone. Here we go. I want to highlight that word. There, the word "exiles." Peter addresses his letter to people who are exiles scattered throughout uh, these various provinces, which are all in modern-day Turkey. Um, why does Peter call them exiles? Well, um, I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, <laughs> One of them is very literal. Many of those he was writing to were Christians who had literally left their homeland because of persecution and were now living in a foreign land. So on a really um, literal level, they were foreigners, they were exiles, they, they were away from their homeland, they were in a foreign land. But I think there's also a deeper reason. And the deeper reason was they were living in a pagan culture which did not share their beliefs and values. And when I use the word pagan this morning, um, I'm not using it as an insult. People sometimes use the word, ah, ah, you pagan. Um, I'm not using it as an insult, you Philistine. Um, um, But using it it, um, according to its technical definition, paganism was these forms of religion where there were many gods, uh, local gods, the gods of the Greeks, the gods of the Romans, gods with many names, gods of thunder, gods of war, gods of fertility and all the rest. So paganism was a form of religion uh, characterized by many gods. And the Christians Peter was writing to were living in a pagan culture which did not share their beliefs and values. And Christians were a tiny minority and their beliefs were seen as very odd because they only believed in one God. And their lifestyle was seen as even odder because they didn't participate in some of the selfish indulgence that was characteristic of the pagan lifestyle um, in lots of different ways. So their beliefs were seen as odd, their lifestyle was seen as odd and most of the time they were either ignored by the culture or ridiculed by the culture or then, as time went on, sometimes persecuted by the culture. And so they found themselves in all those ways living as exiles in a foreign land so it's not just on the literal level but on this other deeper level they were not at home in their culture they felt like fish out of water right they felt like exiles and so the the urgent question then for them was well how do you live again as we've, we've kept saying in the series when you get up on monday morning and you boil your cattle or whatever they did on a monday morning that was the equivalent um, how do you live as an exile in a, in a strange land. And you can immediately see there might have been a few obvious temptations. It was tempting to retreat and hide from the culture and stay in a kind of Christian ghetto. That would have been very tempting. Um, it might have been tempting to fight and rage against the culture uh, and, and react in anger rather than fear, although I suspect that for them that wasn't a big temptation because they were such a tiny minority. Uh, You'd have been shaking your fist at the empire. Um, So I I don't think that was a big one for them. Um, The bigger ones were probably either to hide in fear or simply to blend in and assimilate and become like the culture. So those would have been the two big temptations, the obvious ways to go and live in as an exile in a foreign land. And writing into that kind of context, what does Peter say? I want to read just two verses from a little bit later in Peter. And I do wanna encourage you to go and read the whole book. But 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, this is what Peter says. And you'll see the phrase again. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. So again, that's who he's uh, writing to, both literally and in a deeper way, foreigners and exiles. I urge you to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. And I want to suggest that that, in a nutshell, is Peter's missionary strategy for being an exile, for, for being a missionary on a, in exile or an exile on mission. Um, and you can immediately see there is both a negative and a positive response right and it's important to notice both they are to say no to sinful desires and peter is saying to him there is a war going on but it's not a war with your pagan neighbors it's a war against these desires which war against your soul there's a battle going on and there are sinful desires which are gonna if you're not on alert if you're not vigilant are gonna take you down and so there is this call to draw a line, to take a stand, to say no. I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So there's a, there's a negative part. There's a saying no. There's a drawing a line. There's a taking a stand. Uh, and maybe that part is not surprising and, and is to be expected. But what you immediately notice is there is also to be this positive response, not just a no to the culture, But they are to live among their pagan neighbours, not hiding away. And they're to live lives that are overflowing with what we might call compelling goodness. So that even those who are hostile, who are coming with a a raised fist or a pointed finger, may actually end up having a change of heart. That's what Peter describes. So that even those who want to accuse you of wrong and are ready to have a go, May actually end up glorifying God on the day He visits us because they have seen the compelling goodness of your lives. Um, here's what I want to um, try and persuade you of this morning, um, and we're gonna in a moment we're gonna do a little bit of church history. Um, it's gonna be more fun than it sounds, um, and then we're gonna come back to First Peter and, and some other little biblical reflections. Uh, but I want to try and persuade you this morning that our situation as Christians living in Northern Ireland in 2023 is becoming again more similar to these first Christians, that we are becoming again in a way exiles in a strange land, um, in a culture which, which can again be described as pagan, not as an insult, but as a description, where Christians are becoming again in some ways a marginal minority and all of that sounds very depressing but i also want to try and convince you this morning that that is not a reason for despair that actually this is a moment of great possibility for the church and for mission and that we can respond joyfully and hopefully like the first christians did that we can respond not in fear or in anger but in faith right so that that's my my goal this morning to persuade you that those are the conditions in which we are living, but that there are reasons to be joyful and to be hopeful. So you can tell me later on if I've succeeded. So you ready for a little bit of church history? Um, Some of you look scared or, uh, so a brief history of the church. Um, And this is is gonna be very brief. Um, For the first three centuries, the first 300 years, um, it's fairly accurate to say Christians were a small minority And they were scattered throughout the empire, mostly in little house churches. Mostly in that time, the church didn't have buildings. There were no um, cathedrals or beautiful churches or even sandal center, community centers. They mostly met in homes. They were mostly small churches. And they were in a pagan world that was full of impressive temples and statues of many gods. So as you went about the empire, you knew that they were the gods that dominated the culture. The churches were hidden away in people's homes. And as I said earlier, the Christians were sometimes ignored, sometimes mocked, sometimes persecuted, and they had very little influence in the culture, and they had very little power, and they had very little voice. They were marginal in every way. So what did they do? Well, I want to suggest they got on with living the vision that we just read from first Peter. They said no to the self indulgences of the pagan lifestyle in various different ways. They lived lives of compelling goodness among their neighbours and as they did that they shared the message of Jesus. They shared the good news about Jesus and what happened was that the church grew at an astonishing rate. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Um, And I want to suggest to you, there has never been a more fruitful period of mission than those first 300 years, that these two things are both true, that the conditions were tiny, marginal, ignored, mocked, persecuted, and the mission of the church exploded as it has has never done uh, since then. There may be a couple of periods in history where um, it happened a little bit similarly. But there's never been a more fruitful period of mission, Um, and I want to just show you a few numbers, um, just to try to prove that to you. So, because this kind of boggles my brain, Um, 33 AD, around the time when Jesus, uh, well, we don't know for sure what what the year was, but let's say it was 33 AD. um, There were 120 Christians in the upper room when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. It says in Acts one, there were 120 believers. That, that translates to roughly 0.0002% of the Roman Empire, right? Now, we know, of course, that later that same day uh, there were 3,000 already added to their number, uh, but that's where they began. Um, at a very rough estimate, by 100 AD, um, there were now close to 10,000 Christians, which is quite a lot more, but still in terms of the empire relatively insignificant not point zero one seven percent of the empire now here's the bit that just every time i look at it blows my mind 300 a.d you fast forward a couple of hundred years more there were roughly six million christians in the empire which is 10 percent of the population right now i didn't want to get into um talking about maths here this morning Um, but does anybody remember talking to Miles about exponential curves, right? But instead of, you can get a graph that's kind of a straight line graph that rises like that, or you can get a graph that kind of goes like that, but then curves up. And exponential graphs can kind of blow your mind because what they tend to show is that a steady, a steady rate of growth that just keeps happening can turn into exponential without anything... Um, unusual happening. Um, There's a guy called Rodney Stark uh, who wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity where he's a sociologist and he kind of studied the growth of Christianity in the first 300 years. Um, And what Rodney Stark concluded, and I find this really striking, was that in order to get that kind of growth, you don't actually need lots of mass conversion events, what we might call revivals, because you might look at that and think, Something must have happened in the third century uh, where people got converted en masse, where hundreds and thousands of people came to faith. But what Rodney Stark showed, that may have happened as well. But in order to get that kind of growth, all you need is 40% growth every decade. What does that mean? It means a, a house church of 100 people growing over 10 years to 140. And if that keeps happening, you get this exponential curve. That's what happens. If the church just keeps growing in that kind of way, you get something that looks like an explosion uh, that takes place. I find that really exciting because I think what it means is, um, and I, I think we should pray for revival and ask for revival, and I'd love to see people come into faith in huge numbers, but in order for the church to have the impact that it had in the first 300 years, all you need is Christians living among their neighbors, living lives of compelling goodness. And when their neighbors ask about the source of that goodness and the source of their hope, telling them about Jesus, and the world gets turned upside down. That's what happens. What happened next? I'm going to get stuck there because I get excited by that part. Um, What happens now? Anybody know who that is? Um, That fine-looking fellow? Um, The emperor... Became a Christian around 312 AD. Says Constantine or Statue of Constantine. Um, we have no way of knowing if Constantine's conversion was genuine or if he just saw which way the wind was blowing. But the emperor officially became a Christian, and the result was that Christianity became accepted and approved, and then actually became the official religion of the empire. That's quite a turnaround from a tiny marginal persecuted. Um, uh, group to now the official uh, religion of the empire. Uh, And what resulted from all of that was something that people often call Christendom. I said there roughly from the fourth century to the 20th century, you could argue that the end of Christendom started earlier than that. Um, But from the time of Constantine until very recently, Christianity has been the dominant religion at least in our part of the world, in Western Europe, um, which is where I'm going to focus. Um, And people have often described that as Christendom. It it simply means that Christianity was the dominant religion and the official religion of the empire and later of the the nation states uh, that arose. Um, Now, I'm going to rush through this bit, so I do want to say in passing, there have been many, many, many good outcomes from Christendom. Christian values got reflected in laws. Christian ideas got taught in schools. Um, Christianity impacted Western culture in more ways than we can really summarise. If you want to think about that, Glenn Scrivener has written a brilliant book called The Air We Breathe, about how, how so many of the things we take for value in the Western world actually come from Christianity, even though many people have forgotten it. So I do want to say, you've heard me say, there were many, many good things that happened during that period but what i want to focus on is there have also been many negative outcomes christendom has often not been good for the church and its mission and i want to mention just two of the main reasons for that Um, one of them is that having power is dangerous you know the old saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely but whenever anybody has power it becomes tempting to abuse that power and to use that power to control and coerce. And so Christians who had been a persecuted minority ended up sometimes persecuting their enemies, persecuting other minorities. Christians who had suffered so much violence ended up sometimes using violence to force others to convert or to punish their enemies. And there are lots of big examples of that that people often like to bring up, like the Inquisitions or the Crusades. But there are also lots of smaller examples where Christians had power and didn't use it well. And I think we've lots of examples here in Northern Ireland and in our corner of the world. Having power can bring certain kinds of compromise and corruption. Um, And the other reason why Christendom has, has often not been good for the church and its mission is that cultural Christianity leads to confusion, because once you have this idea that the empire, the nation, is Christian, you get what will often happen in our kind of part of the world. People will say, well, of course I'm a Christian. I live in a Christian nation. I have a Christian monarch. My kids go to a Christian school. Of course I'm a Christian, but often there may be no sign of an actual living relationship with Jesus, and so the mission of the church gets a bit hazy and a bit blurry. How do you do mission in a culture where everybody thinks they're a Christian already? And so for those two reasons, I think Christendom at the very best has been a very mixed blessing and there's been a much darker side to it as well. So that brings us up to near our own time. Um, In the last few decades, and some people would argue really this has been going on for a couple of centuries, um, but Christendom has been crumbling. Um, And you know this as well as I do, Uh, across Western Europe um, and in other parts of the world, the Western world, uh, the number of people who identify as a Christian has been falling. Church attendance has nosedived across Western Europe. Um, Christianity has been losing its position of power and privilege. And this has happened in some places faster than in others. And for lots of complicated reasons to do with us just being a wee bit odd, It has happened slower in Northern Ireland than maybe anywhere else in Western Europe. But I think it is now happening quite rapidly. And for Christians like us, that can be disorienting and it can be confusing. And Christians can become anxious and want to hide away in fear, or Christians can become angry and ready to fight. But I want to come back to what I said at the beginning. Right, that's my church history uh rushed through finished i want to say this morning that this is a moment of great possibility for the church and its mission and i want to put up one of my favorite lines of poetry that i've quoted before from wendell berry who says be joyful though you have considered all the facts right so we've just been considering the facts of some of what's been going on in our world but i want to say that we still we can be joyful um We are living in a world which is becoming, again, more like the world in which the first Christians lived, Um, and a world that I think can, again, probably accurately be described as pagan. Again, not as an insult, but in the sense that people are embracing a new kind of paganism. Um, Our culture is not becoming atheist, as some people expected, where people believe in nothing, but instead people are believing again in many gods and many spiritualities and many superstitions. Um, And ours is a a new kind of paganism, a kind of post-Christian paganism, which often has many half-Christian ideas mixed in. So you get a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of angel guides and spirit guides and a little bit of Ouija board and a little bit of Um, manifesting your destiny and a little bit of your dog will go over the rainbow bridge when it dies to doggy heaven and I don't know what what that is but you get a little bit of all these kind of ideas mixed in together and it's a new kind of paganism and Christianity is becoming again uh, in our culture a minority religion we're losing the position of power and privilege that we have enjoyed Uh, I think we're entering a period where again we may often be either ignored, or mocked, or even persecuted, where we may may find ourselves increasingly marginalized and not invited to the world's party. And still, I want to say, this is a moment of great possibility. The phrase Paul uses in one of his letters where he says, be joyful in hope. And I think we can be joyful in hope. Why is it possible to be joyful, even though we've considered all these facts Um, this is this is the best way i can say it because the church has always been at its best on the margins the church has always been at its best on the margins when the church was at the center of power it stagnated it was corrupted and compromised and lost its soul when the church is at the margins it flourishes and it finds its true voice and its true identity and its true mission, and it is most fruitful in mission from the margins. And I think that's been true not only in the first three centuries, but in places like China under communism, and it's been repeated uh, many times through history. When the church has power, it loses its identity and its voice uh, and its vitality. Whenever it's on the margin, uh, it recovers itself uh, and it flourishes. I don't think Um, This should be a surprise to us. The church was never meant to change the world from above. Um, Do you ever notice when you read the New Testament, you don't find Jesus and the apostles plotting and planning how to get Christians into positions of power in politics and the military and education and media so they could impose the values of God's kingdom from above? Instead, what did Jesus talk about? He talked about things like seed, and yeast, things that are really tiny. <laughs> he talked about planting little seeds in the ground which don't look like much but trusting that God will bring an abundant harvest. He talked about the mustard seed which you can barely see with your bare eyes but it's planted in the ground and it becomes something significant and beautiful and fruitful. He talked talked about mixing tiny grains of yeast through a batch of bread. Have you ever seen yeast? you ever looked at it it's tiny doesn't look like much but it has this incredible power when you mix it through the bread to bring transformation this amazing impact Um, and i think that is the strategy that peter encourages in first peter christians living among the pagans scattered like seed mixed like yeast planting every day little seeds that don't look like much, acts of kindness and generosity, doing their work with a different kind of heart, um, loving their neighbour, loving the stranger, loving their enemy, praying for God's kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven, sharing words of gospel hope. All of that doesn't look like much, right? It doesn't look like enough, but they're trusting God to build his kingdom and change the world. Um, and. There's something kind of on my heart. I want to to say this as bluntly as I can, because this is what I believe. Whenever we think as Christians that we need to have hold of the levers of power in order to change the world, we have lost our faith in the gospel and its power. We've given up on the idea that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes and for the transformation of our world. And whenever we think we've got to have control of the levers of power we've lost our nerve we've lost our faith we've lost our confidence in jesus and his cross and we've lost our trust in the way that jesus taught us to live plant those seeds mix the yeast watch god do his thing that's the way he taught us to live um ricky and i have talked about this many times and part of our burden is for our generation Um, It's a moment of great possibility, but we will miss this moment of possibility. Um, There's a few ways that we could miss it. We'll miss it if we still think we're living in Christendom when the world has actually changed. Um, If we're living in denial, we'll miss the moment of, of opportunity. We'll miss it if we are simply nostalgic for Christendom and pining for the good old days when we used to be a Christian nation and all that kind of stuff. We're sitting around nostalgic and looking back, we'll miss the opportunity in our generation. We'll miss it if we are just constantly surprised and alarmed and depressed that the pagan world is doing pagan things. <laughs> right? The pagan world is going to do pagan things, and we should not be alarmed or surprised uh, by any of that. We'll miss the opportunity if we just engage in constant culture war, trying desperately to claw back control of the levers of power what is the, the the alternative to all of that it is just what peter tells us to do to live as joyful and hopeful exiles and live such good lives among the pagans that even though they come with hostility they end up glorifying god on the day he visits us plant seeds of gospel hope and then watch to see what God will do. Um, I want to I finish with this. Um, and Maybe, maybe this will help as a little picture. I know we've talked about some big things there this morning, uh, but maybe this will help as a little picture uh, that you could take with you. And I've, I've stolen and then adapted this from Paul Williams and uh, his book. Um, I want you to imagine someone who is living um, as a foreigner in a foreign country, but I want to describe four different possibilities just as we finish. Um, It's possible to live in a foreign country as a tourist. Uh, The tourist is just passing through. They know know they're not staying for long. Uh, The tourist will enjoy some things in the local culture, uh, but avoid other things that they don't like the look of. Um, They'll not get that involved or that invested. They don't care that deeply about the culture where they're living they know that this is not their home they know they're going home soon and it's possible for us as christians to have a tourist (laughs) mentality to how we live in our world but if we do that we won't have much impact we'll miss the opportunity uh, that is there second possibility is that we live as an alien and i don't mean like a martian alien Um, but we can live just constantly aware that we don't like the culture. We don't like the weather. We don't like the food. Uh, The alien lives in a a subculture, unhappy and withdrawn, um, stays away from the locals, talks about their homeland, and just doesn't like it. I don't like it, right? That's another possibility for us as Christians. But we will miss the opportunity to be involved in what what the king of life is doing in our generation. Third possibility, I couldn't really find the right word for this one, Uh, we can live as a chameleon in our culture. Um, In other words, we don't like feeling different, we don't like standing out and so we can just lose all our distinctiveness and say I'm going to talk like the locals, I'm going to dress like the locals, I'm going to act like the locals and just blend in so nobody can tell me apart from those around me. And we can do that as Christians but if the salt loses its saltiness, we have no impact in our world there's a fourth possibility there's a fourth kind of person who lives in a foreign land and that person is an ambassador and an ambassador is different to the others because they have been sent on purpose and they are if they're a good ambassador they get involved in the country where they're living and they care about its well-being right they're seeking the shalom of the land where they're they're living they care about it and they care about their neighbours. But the ambassador belongs to another country. He represents another kingdom in the midst of the one where he's living. right? His heart and his allegiance and his identity belong to another king and another kingdom. And so he is able to live with <laughs> joyful hope and seek the shalom of the place where he's in exile but not give his heart to it. And of course... Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20 says, we are Christ's ambassadors. And so I want to encourage you, it's a strange time that we're living in. It can be an intimidating, overwhelming time that we're living in. But I want to encourage you as God's people, uh, be joyful in hope, be patient in affliction, be faithful in prayer, keep planting those little seeds, and don't lose our nerve. The, the power is still where it has always been, which is in the message of Jesus and his death and resurrection. We keep sharing that gospel seed and watch what God will do. He's done it before. You can do it again. Let's pray. Um, I want to encourage you, um, if you would like prayer this morning, uh, there'll be a couple of people up to my left, your right, uh, who'd love to pray with you before you go home. Um, but let's pray together. I wonder, could I ask you to stand as we pray? Um. Um, Father, I want to thank you for the way in which your word prepares us and equips us for anything that life might throw at us and anything that might happen in our world and our culture. Um, Father, I want to pray that you would help us as your people um, not to be overwhelmed and intimidated by the things that are going on and the upheavals of our culture right now. I want to pray that you'd help us to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, Father, I want to thank you for your faithful people through all the centuries who have lived through times much harder than ours and yet kept their eyes on Jesus and kept planting seeds of gospel hope in the soil of their culture. Father, I want to thank you for the gospel, which is the power of God, for the salvation of everyone who believes, and which is the only hope for our culture and our world. Father, help us as your people not to be characterised primarily by despair or fear or anxiety or anger. But show us how to be people of joyful hope. And Father, help us this week. We've talked about a lot of big ideas this morning. But tomorrow morning when the rubber hits the road, help us to go and live among our neighbours as people living the gospel as people speaking the gospel in the name of Jesus, whenever we get the opportunity, um, help us to be your seed, your yeast, scattered through our our town and our neighbourhood and our workplaces and our world. And Father, we want to confess as we finish: we we are not the hope of the world; we cannot change um, one heart, never mind our broken world. But we want to pray. Um, Come Lord Jesus, come Holy Spirit, build your kingdom here. May your kingdom come, may your will be done here in our time, in our generation, in our neighbourhoods, on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's sing as we finish. call.